Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to Bet to Win here at the Blue Wire Studios in the fabulous Win Las Vegas. I'm your host, Joe Fan. A monster show for you here. Jim Root of the Action Network, the Three Men Weave podcast, joins me momentarily to talk NBA draft that takes place Thursday night. Madness in the betting markets that seem to have settled with Jabari Smith going one, Chet Holmgren two, and Paulo Bancaro three. But Jim Root will have all the conversation, all the talking points over the top draft prospects in this year's class and the biggest headlines as we enter the draft as well. I'm going to talk some zags with him uh, at the end of that conversation. Also headlines from every sport, some good, some bad, and some ugly uh, around the world of sports. But first, got a victory lap. The losing streak is over. It ends at three. I took the Mets run line at minus one and a half at the Marlins, uh, a plus 127 winner for your boy, an easy win, 6 nothing. the shutout on Monday. Uh, the Mets cover the run line with ease to get me back into plus money for my winning picks here in the month of June, going back to baseball to end the show with another winning pick. Let's get to headlines. Uh, in terms of the world of baseball, there's no bigger story than Shohei Otani. Holy Shohei Otani. On Tuesday night, two home runs. Eight RBIs against the Royals. On Wednesday night, he takes the bump against the Royals. Eight innings pitched, zero runs, 13 strikeouts. A new career high for Shohei Otani. He is the first player in Major League history to ever have stat lines in his career of two home runs, eight RBIs, and eight innings, eight innings pitched, scoreless with 13 Ks. He did it in back-to-back nights. I'm not positive it's the greatest two-night stretch in the history of Major League Baseball, but I'd be hard-pressed to think that anyone can top that. Absolutely unbelievable what we're seeing from him. Oh, yeah, on Wednesday, he also went one for three with two walks, reaching base three times. There are no superlatives that fit. He he, he surpasses them all, and I don't have any take other than just the need to appreciate what we're seeing because certainly it hasn't happened in my lifetime and we may never see again. And he's, he's going to be around for a while. I don't expect this to, to change anytime soon, but it's remarkable. I saw someone on Twitter say it's like Patrick Mahomes also rushes the passer and gets 12 sacks a year or is a star corner, whatever the cross sport comparison you want to make. This is remarkable and unprecedented in the modern game of baseball from Shohei Otani. And he's just the coolest. He's got so much swag. His 12th strikeout was an inning ender uh, late in the game and just fired up coming back to the dugout. I love this guy. As a Mariners fan, I would love if he was in a different division. Alas, he is in the AL West, tormenting my Mariners, along with Mike Trout, who is the daddy of the Mariners, celebrating Father's Day in Seattle. On Sunday, but we'll get too niche here on the show with my Seattle sports conversation. But Shohei Otani, absolutely unbelievable and continues to be. What a week from him. Um, in the NFL and the NBA, we've got a couple of owners, a couple of dirtbag owners in hot water, continue to be in hot water. Let's start in the NFL with Dan Snyder, who has been subpoenaed by the U.S. House Oversight Committee. Um, the hearings and investigation began last October upon the NFL opting not to release its findings 
of their internal investigation of the widespread sexual misconduct and misogyny uh, taking place inside Washington's organization. Um, This is no surprise to anybody, the NFL trying to cover its tracks and sweep things under the rug. Uh, The committee asked for those findings, and the NFL in Washington did not oblige and withheld more than 40,000 documents in the NFL's review. Uh, Here are some incredible quotes. Uh, from Representative Carolyn B. Maloney, chairwoman of the Committee uh, on Oversight and Reform. Uh, The committee requested these findings, but the NFL and the commanders refused to produce them while also withholding more than 40,000 documents collected in their internal interview. This lack of transparency suggests that rather than protecting women, the NFL is hoping to sweep this controversy under the rug just as powerful men like owner Dan Snyder have done for decades. Continued. Rather than show up and take responsibility for his actions, he chose to skip town. Apparently, Mr. Snyder is in France, where he has docked his luxury yacht near a resort town. That should tell you just how much respect he has for women in the workplace. Mike, drop. It's about damn time someone held that man's feet to the fire, because it sure as hell isn't going to be the other 31 owners in the NFL. Meanwhile, in the NBA, while Dan Snyder's got to turn his yacht around and come back and appear in court, uh, Adam Silver uh, said that the NBA's independent investigation is nearing its end on Robert Sarver, owner owner, um, of the Phoenix Suns. Back in November, the huge ESPN report uh, detailing, again, the workplace environment uh, of racism and misogynally woven into the culture of that organization with more than 70 current and former employees speaking to ESPN's Baxter Holmes. Now, this isn't breaking news to anybody in that, oh, no way, Dan Snyder and Robert Sarver aren't good dudes. No, these are vile individuals. We've known we've known that for a long time, for years and years and years. We've almost become numb to it because... Another story comes out and you just throw your arms up and say, well, nothing's going to happen because these men are rich, they're powerful, and they are protected. Well, you hope that the noise is growing loud enough that action finally has to be taken, a la uh, former Clippers owner Donald Sterling. And, And you just hope that this is finally that moment. And of course, you're not going to take away everything. They're always going to have the money and the yachts that they can take to their resort town in France where Daniel Snyder is currently enjoying himself. But you can take away the relevancy and the influence and the power and their importance to society. We haven't heard from Donald Sterling since he was removed and ousted from the Clippers. So fine, take your golden parachute, but get the fuck out of our sports. That's good enough for me. Pardon the F-bomb, but you know what? Sometimes just drives the point home and I'm ready to see these men have some accountability. And far too often in this country and around the world, the rich and powerful don't have to worry about accountability. That's for those that they look down upon. Smooth transition time to NHL and the Stanley Cup Finals on Monday. The lightning strike back uh, at home, and they win 6-2. to two. They make the series 2-1. to one. But on Wednesday, the Avalanche all but close out the series. Uh, they win 
to make it three to one in the series, the final three, two. They trailed 2-1 going into the third period. They they found the equalizer in the third period and then won in OT. Uh, Nazim Kadri finds the winner with a beautiful move to the top shelf. Um, the Avs have won five games uh, in overtime during these playoffs. A valiant effort from the Lightning, but in all likelihood, you would anticipate this series is over. All right, it's time for the meat of the program here on Bet to Win. I'm pumped to bring in Jim Root. He's the host of the Three Man Weave podcast and college hoops writer for the Action Network, you can follow him on Twitter at Second Chance Points. Jim, thank you so much, man. With the draft starting tonight, I'm excited to talk some hoops. Yeah, thrilled to be here. There's there's been quite a bit of uh, movement and action going on in the NBA draft betting market, so uh, I'm sure we'll get to all of that. Yeah, it is insane. Let's start there on Wednesday night. The market's moving so much. Bancaro, uh, Paulo Bancaro, was twenty to one. Zooms all the way up to where he's the the heavy, the heavy favorite. Uh, to be the number one overall pick. Now the markets are down. Woj tweets on Thursday morning that it's pretty much set. Jabari Parker one, Chet Holmgren two, and Bancaro three. What do you make of the movement and what may or may not have happening later than East Coast or one or later than midnight East Coast time on Wednesday evening? Man, I wish I knew because it seemed like this was kind of the expected order, the one, two, three that, that Woj uh, tweeted out since basically the lottery happened. And even at that point, I, I, I saw Ben Carroll get up to like nine to one right after the lottery. And I thought that was too high, but I was wrong. It just kept going, got all up to 20, like you said. Uh, and then suddenly we see it crashing back down. And that was confusing to say the least because Ben Carroll had never worked out for the magic. He had kind of pushed it back and declined because he almost didn't believe they were going to take him. At least that's what I, I had read and had been reported. So to see it go that far to where Ben Carroll was the favorite to be number one briefly, I, I was shocked. Like somebody clearly thought they knew something that like that's more than than books hedging their bets. That's that's information out there. But I have to I have to rely on Woj and, and Jeff Goodman, some of the guys that are that are in, informed because they seem to think it's still Smith one, Holmgren two, and, and Ben Carroll three, and that sounds like where we're going to end up. What do you make of this class as a whole, this 2022 NBA draft class headlined by those three again, Jabari Smith, Chet Holmgren, and Paulo Bancaro? When you look at last year's class, that was really good. And you had guys like Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy, so many others who were year one impact players. How does this class stack up top to bottom talent-wise, not just the superstars, but the depth as well? I think it's a solid class. It doesn't feel like a home run class to me. Um, some of the depth isn't quite as strong. The point guards are pretty weak in this class. It's almost like all the good ones have been going pro in the in the past. They've get, they've gotten out of college early, and so they're not really there anymore. But uh, the, the high school class not particularly strong either in that regard. Ty Ty Washington, Kennedy Chandler, those are kind of the two true point guards, and, and Chandler's got size concerns, so he's been pretty far down. Uh, but in the front court, it's it's really, really strong. You've got those three at the top with kind of the versatile skills. All of them have a little bit of shooting potential. Smith, obviously, a, a great shooter. And you've got Duran and Mark Williams, two elite rim protectors. So I think it's it's definitely stronger in the front court. Uh, wings are decent. And then the back court, that's where you're going to struggle to to really find an immediate contributor. And maybe that helps somebody like the Pacers, who are floating Malcolm Brogdon out there, and, and teams that are looking for a point guard might not find it in the draft. So maybe that makes Brogdon a little bit more in demand today. Do you have uh, NBA player comps for those top three that you've sort of settled on in terms of your scouting reports and and what you project these guys to be in the NBA? 
Sort of. It's it's tough to really put it like they're not perfect, but you know, I've heard Middleton, like a slightly taller Middleton for Jabari Smith, and I kind of buy that. Um, it, the the easy knock is it doesn't really create his own shot, but again, he's he's nineteen. Like I'm sure he can probably get there at some point. Uh, but the super high release, really smooth jumper. It, it, even when it hits the rim, you get nice friendly bounces because of the release. Uh, that does give me some some Chris Middleton vibes to it. Uh, Bancaro, I, I, Tobias Harris, I've heard he's like kind of a jumbo. Tobias Harris because he's two inches bigger. He's already filled out. Um, the three-point shot's not, not quite there, but it wasn't really for Harris either when he came out of Tennessee. So I, I think that's something that can develop. And Pancaro's just so skilled on the block. Like, you can actually run stuff through him. Mismatches, he's going to punish those. If you send a double team, he's great at finding the open man and sort of bending the defense, forcing them into rotations. The tough one for a comp is Holmgren because there's just really not anybody built like him in the league. Uh, he's such an elite shot blocker. High potential as a shooter, really nice stroke, and then the ball handling is is impressive for someone his size. But the frame is just it, it's narrow and it's not really that projectable. Like I think Jay Billis said something about a a baby Giannis for him, and I I don't buy that because Giannis looked like a guy that just could add weight, needed weight, but didn't have it yet. Holmgren's so narrow in the shoulders and, and thin in the the legs that I don't know if that's something he's really going to add 40, 50 pounds like people want. So. I've struggled to find a comp for him. He may just be kind of a, a super unique player as he enters the league. Yeah, that's how I feel too. To me, Chris Stapps feels lazy. And I don't think just because they're tall, skinny guys, I, I you know, I, that doesn't doesn't fit. And then I don't think you can compare Durant at all just because Durant is was such a pure score coming out of Texas that I think that was easier to project where his game could go regardless of what the weight and the frame looked like going into the draft. He's got to be the biggest boom or bust top three pick. I mean, he truly feels like a lottery in a different way than we normally see in the top three or five. And that's not to say every top three or five pick is a home run, but it doesn't seem like it comes with as many concerns as you'd have with Chet to where will his body, will his frame make it in the NBA? Yeah, I think like the other, you know, true like coin flip lottery, I'm I'm hoping like there's injury concerns, guys. And that's not really what Chet is. Like he doesn't have an injury history. It's not like this is a guy that has a foot injury that's going to make him sit out like Joel Embiid, for instance, uh, or Ben Simmons sat out his entire rookie year. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just because we haven't seen this like this archetype of a 7-1 thin shot blocker that doesn't have a projectable frame like Having no precedence makes it so much harder to to lean on a comparison. I think that's why why it is more of a, a boomer bust kind of lottery type card, like you're saying. Um, I, I believe in it. I, I just think like the the skills are translatable, and he held up a little better physically uh, at at times against stronger guys than I would have expected. I'm sure he got kind of nudged around a little bit, but I think he'll add some strength. Not, not a like I said, not a crazy amount, but I believe in him. I, I think he's a worthy top three pick and, and fits up in that group with Smith and, and with Ben Carroll. What do you think it, the Thunder are saying? We, we want this guy compared to Ben Carroll, who I think everyone would say is the safer pick. Is it just that hey, we're going to be bad for a while? We've got the luxury of time to be patient here and groom him into the vision that we that we see for him compared to 
Bancaro, you're thinking, man, we can plug and play and start winning games immediately, not just with him, but because of him, because of how refined and polished his skill set is going into the draft. Yeah, and they've got 14 first-round picks in the next five drafts, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's actually what it is. So they've got all this ammunition to add other pieces. I think they believe Gildress Alexander is the, the, the offensive fulcrum for them, going to be the guy that can be the primary creator. And that gets a little redundant with Paolo, and, and Holmgren's a better shooter. They seem very set on playing that five-out style, and that's where Holmgren really thrives. He, he's plenty comfortable spacing from the perimeter. He basically played guard on offense in college uh, in, in a four-out system around Drew Timmy. So they seem comfortable with that. Seems like a good, a good pick for their timeline and for what they built around Shy. And then, yeah, I mean, they, they've got the time to wait and develop. They've got the ammunition to, to build around those guys. And if he doesn't work out as the super boom, like top end shot blocker shooter that they're hoping, they've got ways to, uh, to compensate for that as they continue building over the next few years. Did you make a mock draft, Jim? I did not. I, I don't have an official mock draft. I, I read all of them over and over, especially the ones where I think they're, they're truly sourced and that, you know, there's information coming like the Jeremy Wu's, the Sam Vecini's, the John Gavoni's. Uh, but I don't have a, a personal one myself. Do you have a pick in the top five or top 10 that you think is sort of, you know, the wild card of the first round where if the expectation is that, you know, you have one, two, and three locked in is pick four, uh, the real wild card where it starts, or is there a pick in the top 10 that, that you're really excited to see how it plays out? I think it's pick four and not because of who it's going to, who's going to be taken. I think it's who's going to be taking him. I think it's going to be Jaden Ivey. I, I think the top four is actually pretty settled, even around what I read from, from GMs. They think it is a top four, and Ivey's that top perimeter guy. But it doesn't feel like the Kings are very settled on being in that spot. I don't know if they don't like the fit with Fox and with Davion Mitchell, which that's another story. I don't think they should be worrying about that if, if they believe Ivey is a true franchise changer. But there's a lot of talk about them fielding calls for that pick, uh, looking for trades. I think Woj said he, he almost expects them to, or they're going to weigh a bunch of offers leading right up to while they're on the clock. So basically, who ends up in that slot starts to set the tone down the line because I, I think if somebody trades up that might want a big, uh, then we start to see the bigs fall. Like the Duran, Mark Williams guys, uh, they could go early together or if it doesn't work out and no one takes Durin first and they kind of play a game of chicken with the bigs, those guys could both fall down the, the to mid first round. So what happens at four and who trades up there and what they are trading up for and, and where Sacramento goes a little bit further down the line. Uh, that's, that's, I think kind of the turning point of the draft as we, as we head into tonight. It's funny in all sports, there are different franchises who, Whatever decision they make, even if it's sort of out of the box, you immediately think it'll work out. They know something we don't know. You just give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, the, the Patriots, of course, certainly won in the NFL. Um, and then you have the Kings who are at the bottom of that list. And you think whatever they do, they're going to screw it up. Uh, what's wild about the Kings is as a, as a tortured Seattle fan, the Sonics have won a playoff series more recently than the Kings have won a playoff series. And and then you look at last year and you said, well, they've got De'Aaron Fox, but just draft Davion Mitchell and then make it work and figure it out later. And all of a sudden you're having the same exact conversation a year later. What's it going to take 
for this franchise to figure it out in any regard because competency has not been their strong suit over the last decade plus. Yeah, and it's kind of been top down where some of the personnel decisions aren't great. The coaching decisions have been a little bit confusing. And I, I don't know, the Mike Brown one is jury's still out, but I would say the the historical stuff doesn't give me a ton of uh, warm and fuzzies about the upside there. I, I was surprised they went with kind of a, a retread considering the success of guys like Taylor Jenkins in Memphis or, or Chris Finch. Like there's been guys that have been a little more off the radar uh, taking a gamble for an organization and they've, they've shown considerable upside. So I thought maybe Sacramento would go that route, but not the case. Uh, so yeah, they're, they traded Halliburton last year, a guy that a lot of the league was high on, brought in uh, Sabonis, and that was supposed to balance the roster. But now they've got this this dilemma again where it's a guard staring them in the face for their pick, and we'll see if they can maximize the value out of number four because I, I think there is demand for it, and, and there's a lot of people that are high on Ivy. But we'll just see if uh, people concur with the deal the Kings end up making if they do trade it. You mentioned a couple of the bigs as potentially having high floors and ceilings in terms of where they go. Is that the biggest kind of swing that you see with a prospect? Or is there somebody else who could potentially sneak into the top 10, top five, or fall away into the back half of the first round? Uh, yeah, so I, some of the guys, and, and somebody pointed this out to me yesterday just uh, as a way of thinking about it, like Jeremy Sohan and Dyson Daniels, two guys that, they're like, they're good at everything except shooting. Like the swing skill for them is shooting. And that's, you know, arguably one of the most developable skills. I mean, I think there's an inherent touch to it that some guys have or don't have. But if you put them with a shot doctor like Chip Engeland in, in San Antonio or some of the other guys across the league that have great uh, reputations, maybe those guys actually have even higher upside than we're giving them credit for. Uh, Sohan, especially, like just a total destroyer defensively. Great cutter on, on offense, smart ball mover, really quick processor, just like his mind works really well in basketball, but doesn't have the shooting stroke quite yet. But if that comes along, like that fills in the blank and suddenly, I, you know, he's almost up in that top three group of prospects with how, how well he processes the game and, and the tools he has physically. So him and, and Daniels from G League Ignite, I think is kind of the same way, a, a big guard that needs the shot. But if the shot comes, th those guys are really, really high upside. My biggest, this isn't a question, more of just like a draft pet peeve, and I hate every year that even if the trade happens, they still come out and wear whatever hat that was the team who had the pick originally because the trade doesn't necessarily go through right away. I don't know why that's the case. Is there a reason for that? Or is this like a dumb complaint by me? It doesn't make any sense to me that, you know, they've traded the rights to whatever, but they still come out in this team's hat. And why, why do we have to go through that song and dance? Why can't they just give him the new hat when everyone knows that's the team he's going to be playing for. Yeah, I guess like there's the the bylaws of like maybe the trade has to be completed after the draft, but then you get the real cruelty of like if the guy turns out awesome, that fan base has to see him in the hat. They've got the picture. And, and right. And like we had him, but we traded the pick. And that's that's the most torturous thing that you have to deal with that over the years and and think about what might have been with the guy that that wore your hat but never wore your jersey. Uh, Jeremy Grant was traded to the Blazers from the Pistons on Wednesday. Do you expect any other NBA player movement tonight? I guess it, you would imagine if some some team went to the Kings and traded up to four, there would be players involved. But are there names out there that are rumored to be on the move Thursday evening? 
Yeah, I think Brogdon is the big one for Indiana. Uh, I think the report came out a, a couple hours ago, uh, or maybe an hour ago, that Indiana really wants to reshape their roster. They don't feel like it's it's totally trending towards uh, the contention that they want. They like some of the guys in the in the late lottery, so they're probably going to try to find a second pick with with uh, with Brogdon there, and, and Miles Turner. I think also for Indiana, a guy that's been discussed as potentially on the move, though maybe not exactly tonight. That could be an after the draft kind of thing. Um, so, so Brogdon potentially the biggest name to move, but you know, there's always the the Kyrie ordeal that's going on in Brooklyn. I know he wants to maybe go west or, or across the uh, the boroughs of New York to the Knicks. We'll see if something like that surfaces. I think that would probably be the biggest domino in terms of a, a real like all NBA caliber player. Uh, but I don't know if we'll see that. It, it seems like it's going to be someone from like the Brogdon caliber, and then on down the line from there. Jim, I want to talk about a little bit of college hoops for next year and the the future, the the favorite to win the championship in the 2022-2023 season is uh, Gonzaga at 8-1, to one, Duke, Kentucky, Arkansas, Kansas, UCLA, North Carolina, all at 10-1. to one. I'm a Gonzaga fan, have been uh, my whole life, ever since they first put on the slipper. And I am so tired of hearing, and maybe this is just me being a sensitive Gonzaga fan, but the the narrative and the conversation that Gonzaga chokes each and every March, which doesn't make sense to me when you look at since 2015, they've been to the Sweet 16 every year. They've made the Elite Eight twice, uh, and then they've made two natty appearances. I just don't get it. Is it a bummer they haven't gotten it done and they lost North Carolina game they should have won, really an ugly game um, at State Farm Stadium in Arizona. And then they got beat down by a faster, more physical Baylor team that was just, they brought their A-plus game and they brought it for 40 minutes. I, I just, we've got, we can't use the word choke so liberally if this is a team that's made two national championships. And I also think it's important to note that while Gonzaga continually has number one seeds and they play in the WCC and they beat up on them, and that's a gripe from a lot of, you know, casual, I think, college basketball fans around the country, really it's been the last two years that they've finally started to recruit high school recruits with the big dogs and take away guys from the Dukes and the Kansases and the Kentuckys. That's me putting it out there for you. And I'm just curious where you're at in this conversation of, of Gonzaga choking in March. I, I am firmly that that is a ludicrous point of view too. Like I, it's calling them chokers is crazy. Like, but they've been good since 2001 or so. Would you say that's when they maybe put on the slipper you know who hasn't won since then? The entire Big Ten, the entire Pac-12. Like it's not just Gonzaga; they get this unfair target because this is one team that uh, has been really successful and plays in a different conference. But like no one in the Big Ten has won. I think maybe it's not the WCC competition. It's just that winning a title is really hard. It's really hard. There's a lot of great coaches that have never done it. There are some incredible teams that didn't do it. I, it's just, you know, Gonzaga is going to get one and eventually all those those voices will fall away. Same thing happened with Virginia. People said the style couldn't win. And then Tony Bennett won one and suddenly no one's saying that anymore. So it's kind of a low-hanging fruit for people that maybe don't pay as sharp of attention to college basketball. Um, I have a little bit of concern about this particular iteration of Gonzaga, very built around Drew Timmy and whether... They have the defensive versatility to beat the elite of the elite. Probably, you know, you probably need three elite wins in uh, in March to get it done. And and maybe that they don't have the the mobility defensively with him out there to do that. But they're every every they have every right to be a top five ish favorite. 
And they're going to be awesome again next year. Probably will start season number one in Ken Palm and, and get a number one seed. And whether they win or not, there will be uh, hard opinions on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I agree on the Timmy thing because he is unquestionably so skilled and talented. And he can go win you a game by himself from the offensive end. But until they go toe-to-toe and beat, the big, fast, strong, athletic team where I'm always going to have nightmares about the Baylor game and the Natty that was over in the first five minutes. The Arkansas game had a very similar script where they sort of get punched in the mouth and their finesse, run-and-gun style of play doesn't get it done. Now, you look at this starting five and Timmy comes back, Strother comes back, Bolton comes back, and then they get Malachi Flynn to transfer from Chattanooga and you look at well, they're reloaded again, and, and I understand your question and concerns about winning a championship with, with Timmy as a centerpiece, but I can't imagine there are going to be many starting fives around college basketball that match up favorably uh, against what Gonzaga is going to put out there night tonight. Yeah, I think the one that people would argue would be North Carolina, bringing back the four starters from the national title Certainly. game and, and adding Pete Nance from Northwestern. But yeah, like... The talent is incredible, and that North Carolina team has a similar build where they have kind of the more uh, not as mobile big in the center in Baycott, and they made it work. They got to the national title game, and I think North Carolina's run shows a little bit how precarious it can be. Caleb Love hit two monstrous threes against UCLA that if either one rims out, they probably don't win that game. They're not in the Final Four. Nobody's talking about them as the top three team next season. And, you know, Gonzaga has to deal with the, the foul trouble that was maybe a little questionable in, in Chet, for, for Chet Holmgren in the Arkansas game. It's just these little margins that happen in a single elimination tournament that people do tend to overreact to a little bit. And that's the fun of it. I get it. But um, I, I, Gonzaga is right up there again. I'll probably have him top three in the country in my preseason rankings. And for, for, for actual power ratings, I have them number one because they're going to blow out teams in the non-conference. But I just have that little concern late as they get into the, the high levels of the tournament. I think they've only won something like three games against top four seeds in, in all their, their play over the last few years, even despite having one seed. So that's the one knock on them is that they, they've struggled to get those elite, elite W's, but they schedule hard in the non-conference. They blew out Texas last year. They blew out UCLA last year. Like it, It's a really good team that just hasn't had it all come together in March quite yet. He is Jim Root, the host of the Three Man Weave podcast and a college hoops writer for the Action Network, a brilliant basketball mind, not just because he agrees with me and he's in on the Zags next season. Follow him on Twitter at Second Chance Points. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Enjoy the draft tonight, and I hope we get to reconnect here soon. Yeah, appreciate you having me. We would happily come back on if you, if you want me. I love talking to, I love having new guests on, but you could just tell this guy is, is so in the know, the way he talks hoops, the way he analyzes it. Just, I mean, a wonderful guest I look forward to having back. Uh, on a number of occasions. Again, the Three Man Weave podcast. Check it out uh, and follow him on Twitter at Second Chance Points. Jim Root, a tremendous guest uh, here on Bet to Win. Promo time. We've got the ultimate fantasy football experience giveaway. Uh, all new WinBet users can bet $500 or more on sports or casino and be entered into a prize drawing to have their fantasy football draft at the Encore Beach Club here in Las Vegas with up to 11 friends. Again, here at Betsy, we wouldn't mess around with eight-team leagues or 10-team leagues. It's all about 12-team leagues. You can bring everybody to EBC for your draft. Again, WinBet users, $500 or more on sports or casino. To be entered, go to winbet.com or download the WinBet app for official 
rules, and details. Winning pick time. I'm three and three in the month of June, but I'm up 1.22 units because I've found a couple plus money uh, winners. Today, it's not that. I'm going into baseball and I don't know. I'm just, the Mariners fan in me is already regretting this, but I am taking the lowly Mariners. First five money line at the A's at minus 120. I could have taken the run line at minus a half a run to get plus money, but I'm okay with a tie at the end of the fifth inning, pushing and living to fight another day. It just makes too much sense because as bad as the Mariners have been, Oakland has been so much worse. They are 25th in WRC plus against left-handed pitching, and Robbie Ray has been lights out of late. His last two starts, 14 innings pitched, one earned run, 14 strikeouts. Uh, Meanwhile, the Mariners rank sixth in WRC plus against right-handed pitching and Frankie Montas, the ace of the Oakland A's. He's been mostly pedestrian this season, a 3-5-3 ERA, which is okay, but not great for him. He's given up eight earned runs over his last two starts. The A's have lost 10 of their last 11 games in which Montas has started. And that just speaks to how bad the lineup is. Uh, As my guy from VEASAN, Greg Peterson, pointed out last night, among the players on the A's roster with at least 30 at-bats, their leader in the clubhouse in batting average is Christian Betancourt and Chad Pinderet, just 241. It's a pathetic and obvious lack of effort from A's ownership and their continued attempt to sabotage the franchise and eventually move them to Vegas. The Mariners have dominated games one and two of this series. I expect them to win game three as well and complete the sweep. Robbie Ray on the bump. I'm putting my faith in you, sir. Mariners money line, first five at minus 120 at Oakland here on Thursday. That's going to do it for this episode of the show. Really appreciate Jim Root again for coming on of the Action Network. Check out his three-man weave podcast. Enjoy the draft tonight. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on the other side on Monday right here on Bet to Win.